Harvey was just praying about the, the majesty and glory of God and how, at the same time, he has approached us through Christ. And this is simply amazing. So it's fitting because that's what we're going to talk about today from Genesis chapter 15. And as I sometimes joke with you, I'm not the best sermon title guy out there. And this one seems a little cliche because it's like, you know, one of the most popular Christian songs of all time. But I think if I do a decent job today and the Spirit helps me, that's what I want you to come away with as we finish Genesis chapter 15, is that you should be overwhelmed by the nature of God's grace. But the story. There's a friend of mine who's part of our local gospel coalition here, and um, he has for years been doing ministry among Muslims. He did it for quite a while over in Nepal, and now he's back here in the United States doing this on behalf of the Southern Baptist Local Mission Board here in our city. And whether you're aware of this or not, we have tens of thousands of Muslims now in Columbus. Columbus is becoming a destination for uh, resettled refugees. And so estimates are that there's maybe 45,000 Somalis now, which are stridently Islamic. There's lots of South Asians, uh, Middle Easterners, people from the Arabian Gulf. There's, there's people, um, you know, all over the place now in our city who, who are both either culturally or committedly religiously Islamic. And there is a difference between those two things, but nevertheless, they would consider themselves Muslim. So my friend is consistently going in and out of mosques all over our city, and there are mosques all over Columbus, and sharing the gospel. And he's very bold about it. He's very caring and loving, yet at the same time very direct. And so he started bugging me to go with him. And I've been in the Middle East. I've been in an Islamic context before. I've woken up in the morning and five times a day heard the call to prayer, which is, you know, it's not normal for us as Americans. And I felt, you know, sometimes a little uncomfortable there, but never felt threatened. But it's interesting that whenever he invited me to do this, there was this part of me that, that, that felt fearful about it. Not because I feel like somebody's going to kill me for my faith, but, but I didn't want to fight and I didn't want to argue. And, and I didn't know all the things that would come up in this conversation. So anyway, I agreed to go with him because I felt like you know, it was the hard thing and sometimes the hard thing is the right thing to do. So believe it or not, there's actually now a mosque here in Lewis Center. And it's small. They rent out some office space. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think it's a mosque architecturally, but nevertheless, um, some of our local neighbors use it as their place of, of prayer and worship. So once, one Friday, which is kind of like their Sunday, it's a special day for them, they, they gather together. We agreed to go meet there. And he had called ahead and asked them if it was okay, and we got there, and, and it was clear by their body language that it wasn't okay really for us to be there. It would be kind of like somebody from another faith showing up here on Sunday and saying, hey, I'm going to kind of watch what you do, and then afterward let's have like two hours of dialogue and we're going to argue. And we didn't want to be offensive by any means, so we, we kind of stepped away from that. But we set up a meeting with one of their teachers. Okay, So for the past couple of weeks, including this coming Tuesday, we have been meeting with one of their teachers in the church. And their, not their church, but their, their, their fellowship. And um, his name is Ray Hahn. He'll never listen to this podcast, I'm sure. So uh, it's okay for me to say that. I won't say any more than that. But I, I would like you to pray for Ray Hahn, and let me tell you the story. Ray Hahn is, is Bangladeshi, and he grew up in sort of a nominal Muslim family. And in his late teens, maybe early 20s, I think actually after he was in college, he had an uncle that passed away unexpectedly. His uncle had just been granted entrance into the United States. It was a big deal for him to come here. And as soon as he got here, he got sick and he died. And this was this radically life-transformative kind of thing for Rehan because he was fearful about his eternal destiny and what would happen to him. So he dug into his cultural heritage. And even though his parents are nominally Muslim, he became very passionately Muslim to the point that now he's teaching youth at the big Islamic center over in Dublin. And he, he knows his stuff. He He's learning Arabic. He can quote a lot of the Quran, And on top of that, he's just a really nice guy. And so we've had some really great dialogue. He's shared with us the tenets of, of his faith, and we've shared with him the tenets of ours. He, he didn't have any illusions. He knew that we knew some of his stuff, and, and we know he knows some of our stuff. So, but we're dialoguing back and forth to see what God will do. And it's interesting that over time, some of those fears have been alleviated, and it's turned into this good conversation. And I have no idea what God will do with this, and I want you to pray for Rehan because only he can open Rehan's eyes to see his need for Jesus. But it's interesting, in the, in the first meeting we got together, my friend asked him very specifically, when it's all said and done, and, and you stand before, before God, are you pretty confident that he will show you mercy? And as a, a 
as a well-versed Muslim, should say, he said, I believe that God is the most merciful being in all the universe and that there is no one that compares with him. We believe that we cannot comprehend the mercy of God. And so that, that's sort of orthodox Islam. But he said, at the same time, I don't know. At the same time, I want to believe that I've submitted enough that he will accept me. Right now, as we're meeting with Rehan uh, over coffee, he doesn't drink with us, he doesn't eat with us because he's observing Ramadan. He's very committed to his faith. So he believes that if he does the right things in the right order, if he serves the poor, if he loves God, if he's merciful and kind and, and learns God's word, his God's word, and, and, and does all the tenets of his faith faithfully, that hopefully this merciful God will, will choose to accept him. And it was interesting in that, in that moment, whenever he opened his heart up to that, I thought to myself, this, this is so sad because he doesn't know. But he's trying so hard to do all the right things. Um, I insensitively, so if you've ever been insensitive in some sort of cross-cultural context, you can join the ranks with me. The past two times we've gotten together, I have not remembered that he's observing Ramadan, and I've offered to buy him something to drink. And, and he won't. He's very strident about this and very stringent. He wants to do the right things and make sure he keeps all the right rules. And it's, it's, it's just sad. Now, I respect him on the one hand, because he's faithful to what he's seeking to believe. I respect him likewise because he's humble. He listens. We've had really great dialogue. It's not true that every Muslim you'll ever run into is going to fight with you and threaten you. He, he's not like that at all. But at the same time, he's banking on the fact that if he just does all the right things in all the right order, that hopefully his God will accept him. And I think we look at that and we say, whoa, you know, I'm glad I'm not a Muslim or I'm glad I'm not this other religion. I'm glad that I'm an evangelical Christian because I know that conceptually grace is free. God's forgiveness does not come on the basis of my efforts. I've said to you before, and I think it bears repeating today, I don't think that most people, when they hear the gospel, reject it because they cannot conceive of it. As we speak to Rehan, he understands what a gift is. If I give you something that's wrapped up in shiny paper with a bow and your name is on a name tag and I hand it to you, I think you're pretty aware of what that is. It's, it's a gift and it's free and you don't have to pay for it. I think the problem with us receiving free grace is not that we cannot conceive of the nature of something that's free. I think the difficult thing about grace is that we don't, we don't want it to be free. I want you to just kind of let that marinate and sink in for a moment. We don't, we don't like stuff that's free. At the end of the day, deep down, there's something in us that sort of recoils that is sort of bothered by the nature of something coming to us without, without cost. We don't like that. I think fundamentally it's because of our pride. We want to know that we have contributed something to the mix. And as you look at the story of Abraham, Abraham was really no different than us. And I think one of the important things for us to do, and it's hard for us to do this at times, but as we look back at this story, this true story, and when it was written, and why it was written, and to whom it was written, I think it will help us connect to why it was written. Moses wrote the book of Genesis to teach his people that he was leading out of exile to the land of salvation, where they had come from, what they were like, what their God was like, and how it was all going to work out. They needed to know that in many ways they were much like their forefather Abraham, one God had called out of paganism, out of seeking his own way, and had brought to himself. And now God was doing that for Israel. But Abraham had a disease. This disease is what we might call the disease of self-righteousness. And it was deep-rooted, and it was not going to be eradicated easily. As Moses gazed out at the horde of Israelites that he led out of Egypt toward the Promised Land, guess what he saw when he looked out at this horde of people? He saw a people that were overtaken by a plague. 
And at times, under Moses' leadership, it seemed like there was no remedy for this plague. And much like their father Abraham, the disease, the plague which they all bore was the disease, the plague of self-righteousness. It was true for the generation that came out of Egypt, and it was true for almost every ensuing generation in Israel's history. And frankly, it's true for our world today. There is a reason why if you look at most of the Protestant evangelical denominations in the West that came out of the Protestant Reformation and recaptured an understanding of free grace through a gospel, why by and large most of those denominations now in the West have fallen back into a system of self-righteousness. And it didn't take that long. Why? Because we are diseased with the same disease that Abraham and the people of Israel under Moses' leadership felt, and that is that we want to contribute something to the mix. And if you think about it, it was the very nature of the first sin. When Satan came to Adam and Eve, he tempted them with with autonomy, with with self-righteousness, that they could govern themselves and that left to themselves, they'd actually be better off. And you see this in the fruit of them trying to cover themselves up after their sin. They go to hide from God, but they are aware that they're naked and they try to, to cover themselves with temporary coverings. Why is that? Because they were convinced that if they thought hard enough, if they worked hard enough, if they were just faithful enough to figure it out and be consistent in their pursuits, that they could cover their problem. And that's the way the world is and has been ever since. So I feel like we can, without too much difficulty, look at our world and see this. But often it's true in our own hearts as well. And I think you can detect this in yourself by asking yourself kind of a fundamental question. When the floor drops out and and there's seemingly nothing underneath you to support you anymore, and I'm, of course, speaking metaphorically, when everything kind of falls out from underneath you and it's brittle and crumbling, where does your mind turn for confidence? What's your source of peace in which you rest? And it's amazing the kinds of things that we can concoct, the kinds of things that we can turn to. When life is not going like you want, where does your mind turn? Where where do your affections lie? And often they can be in good things, but those things ultimately are not just that, ultimate. They can turn to our kids. Our kids can become sort of our source of delight in a twisted way. It can be a spouse. It can be money. It can be food. It can be exercise. It can be your job. It can be your pedigree. And on and on we can go. But in those moments when the floor drops out, where does your mind turn so that you can find some sort of peace or rest? And so you see, even those of us who belong to God, who sort of conceptually assent to this idea of free grace, we too are still sort of, sort of diseased, at least the remnants of the disease of self-righteousness. So if you are listening to God's word today, which we will read in just a moment, and you have not submitted to Christ, I say to you that you have a disease and it's self-righteousness, and I am not surprised, but there is a remedy. And I say to those of you who have submitted to Jesus, the one who alone provides grace, that probably in one way or another, in the nooks and crannies, the recesses of your heart, this still can persist in one way or another, and therefore you need to be reminded. I say also to those of you, perhaps to whom these these words are not necessarily resonating, you might be absolutely weary today. I think we find ourselves there a lot. We're weary of life. Our marriages are wearing us out. Our children are wearing us out. Our jobs are wearing us out. Our sin wears us out. We're tired of struggling. 
I say to those of you today who are caught up in pride, that think that somehow you've figured it out, you're wise theologically, you're faithful in your religious efforts. If you're weary, if you're prideful, or if you're self-righteous, or many other things, this word is for you today. And I want you to listen carefully as you read now. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit by faith to reveal those recesses of your heart which need to be explored by the light of God's word, that he might be faithful to expose them, and that he might be faithful to change you. So pray that now as we read. This is God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. They brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and Abram, behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's Word. So we are speaking today as we are continuing to teach verse by verse through Moses' book of Genesis about the story of Abraham, and today this is about amazing grace. The first thing I want us to see today is that God's grace may only be received by faith. One of the really striking things that you find as you read this chapter is that indeed, way back in the Old Testament, we find that God counted people righteous, or he justified them on the basis of faith. Turn with me, please, if you don't mind, to Galatians chapter 3. As you read the Apostle Paul's writings, who wrote so many of the epistles of our New Testament, as he interpreted the life of Christ and what it meant for the church and its understanding doctrinally as well as its worship, he consistently came back to Abraham as the model of justifying faith. So just to make sure we are defining our terms here, justification is a legal declaration of God. It's how he looks at us. It's sort of like being acquitted from a crime. We are all under God's wrath because we are sinners. Everyone, you and me. But there is a chance to have that verdict taken away. This is legal language. And justification is acquittal. It's being declared righteous, not on the basis of our efforts, but on the basis of the efforts of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is arguing often in his letters about how we can be justified, how we can pass from death to life, guilty to not guilty. And he's consistently poking at this notion that somehow we can meet God halfway. Paul used to be like that. He was, he was perhaps the sort of epitome of the disease of self-righteousness. 
And it took the risen Lord meeting him on his way to go murder more people who were preaching this good news to confront him and say, enough of your disease, I'm going to heal you and I'm going to do it radically by my grace. And then for the rest of his life, Paul preached against that incipient disease. But he often referred back to his great father Abraham as the model of faith. Look in Galatians 3 with me. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Love that language. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, our preaching has been so convincing, you can understand these things. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Again, that's legal declaration. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Abraham, the gospel preached to him, according to Paul. And you look back and you're like, as I read Genesis chapters 12 through 15, which is where we've discovered Abraham so far, I don't see anything about Jesus of Nazareth. But hold on just a minute. Look down with me in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So you've already seen that the gospel was preached to Abraham in verse 8. But as you read Genesis 12 through 15, even though promises are made to Abraham about, about having seed, about having a land, and then blessing the whole world, there's nothing specific about the gospel, at least the way that we understand it, except that Paul says that there was. That in some way, when God promised Abraham, like we saw in Genesis 15, that, that the night sky, and the, the multitude of stars represented how God was going to bless Abraham. His seed was going to be like that. That somehow Abraham understood, in God's providence, through God preaching the gospel, that somehow not only would a multitude of blessing come to Abraham, but there would be specific blessing. In fact, all the nations would be blessed through that specific blessing. And according to Paul, in some way, Abraham understood the promise of the Messiah who would come. So God would give Abraham seed. He would give him a family which would grow into a nation. And this nation is the one to which Moses is writing in Genesis. And out of that nation would arise a singular man named Jesus. And through that man Jesus, not only Israel, but all the nations of the world would be blessed So when Abraham believed God, he believed something about the seed. He believed that God would keep his promises. And according to Genesis chapter 15, God then justified him. So by what means has mankind always been justified? How have they passed from death to life, from guilty to not guilty? I think if you were to ask the average Western churchgoer, how were people before Jesus in the Old Testament Saved. If you were to kind of ask it generically like that, like even if you didn't use the word justified, I think that probably more than 50% of them would say they were justified or saved by keeping the law. Now, you may not like that, especially if you're sort of theologically astute, but I promise you that's probably, 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 that's probably a low percentage. That's a low estimate. Most people would probably say to you, if you ask the question, how are people saved in the Old Testament, they would say by keeping the law. Maybe, maybe that's how you thought for a long time. 
But the prototype for the people of the Old Testament, which was Abraham, because he was the first Jew, if you will, was that justification was always by faith. Faith in God's promises. Specific promises. And according to Paul, there was more specificity probably than we even realized. There was specificity of God's promises around Jesus himself. So how are we justified today? By trusting in the Son of God who gave himself for us. That's the good news. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And if we trust him, our penalty can be removed, and we can have eternal life and fellowship with God. But according to Paul, it had always been that way. And Abraham understood perhaps better than we know. So you see, justification has always been by faith. And this is of significant importance. What did the people of Israel need to know? As Moses wrote Genesis 15, what was he trying to communicate to them? Not just stories about their past, but stories that would help them understand themselves. Stories that would help them understand who their God was. And as Moses, as we've already talked about, surveyed the people in front of him, he saw this incipient disease of self-righteousness, and he wanted to expose it in them. And basically what Moses wants to say to the people of Israel is, stop striving. You cannot meet God halfway. You're evil and you can't remedy this on your own. Much like our father Abraham, we have a problem. But only our covenant-keeping God can fix it. And I say the same thing to you today. If you have not yet submitted to Jesus, you are much like the ancient Israelites, you are much like Abraham, you are much like Adam and Eve and every other human that's ever lived. But there is a remedy. And it will not come from you striving and working harder and harder. It will come only from you submitting to the one who alone has paid the penalty for your sin. You see, it's not just believing certain things about Jesus. It's resting in him completely. It's kind of the difference between looking at a chair and saying, I assent to the fact that that chair looks stable enough to hold me. But it's an entirely different thing to actually rest your body weight on that chair. It's more like, it's more like rest. You see, belief has to be coupled with the idea of confidence and rest for it to be saving faith. And you might look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, that's too easy my new friend Ray Hahn would say, the gospel of Christianity, that's too easy. And in a sense, I get what he means because there's nothing that I contribute. But on the other hand, it's the hardest thing of all. See, it's one thing to know certain things about Christianity. It's an entirely different thing to rest on it, to bank on it, to make it your sole confidence, to not hedge your bets and to say, that's it and that's all. And Abraham had to go through all the things that he had gone through to finally come to that point. And I believe probably there's some here today that are in the same place. Where self-reliance needs to be eradicated. And you need to trust Jesus as your only resource. That's true for any human that's ever lived. And perhaps it's never been harder for those of us today who seem to have so much. Because if idolatry abounds in the heart of mankind, and it certainly does and it always has, there has never been an age that is more idolatrous than this one. There are so many things that we think we can sink our anchor into that will not allow us to go adrift. But I'm telling you that it's an illusion, and Jesus is it. And frankly, that's not easy. And even though you're not working, and even though you have nothing to offer him, it's difficult to believe like that. But God can do that, and he does. Look with me, please, in Romans 4, briefly. We'll find similar thoughts. Paul wants to make sure that the people of Galatia understand that justification does not come by effort. He wanted the people in Rome to understand this as well. So in Romans chapter 4, we won't take time to read the whole chapter, but a sampling of verses. 
In verse 1, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? You know what Paul's doing here? He's basically saying, just go read your Bibles. What do they say? Abraham believed God, middle of verse 3, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So how was Abraham justified? By faith. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, not just ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel, we'll call that in Romans chapter 9. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's always been that way, and it will always be that way. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we're turning around a bit here, but I want you to see this as a common and consistent theme throughout the Scriptures. It's good for us to turn pages and see it with our eyes. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, like Abraham was, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By what means are we saved? By grace, through faith. And even that, even the faith, is a gift that comes from God. That's why John can say in the opening of his gospel, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How is a person justified? By staking their claim on Jesus. Not just believing things about him, by staking their claim. He's all they've got. They're pouring everything into that. How do they come to that conclusion? God grants them that faith. I think that's what we see back in Genesis chapter 15. Ultimately, God makes it clear that he's the one who brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In other words, he's saying to him, Abram, I've brought you out of paganism. You can trust me. But Abram's concerned. God, you've made me these promises, and I've been sojourning now with you a while, but there's no kid. That's the first thing you promised me. You'd give me a kid. And I'm doing nothing getting older. I don't have like this nice DeLorean. I can go back in time like when I'm 30, and I'm like really virile, and I can have a kid again. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. Forgive me if you don't understand Back to the Future references. I'm so sorry if you have not seen this amazing piece of American cultural art. Okay, You can go look it up later. You can't do that. He's concerned. God, how's there going to be a nation if I don't even have one son? Why do we need a huge land if we don't have any kids? And how in the world are we going to bless the world if there's not even one kid? All I've got is this guy named Eliezer. Might have been one of Abraham's servants. God takes him out of his tent, tells him to look up at the night sky, and says, if you can count all those stars, you'll be able to comprehend the nature of the blessing. Now again, I've already said to you, that's not just going to be ethnic Jews, people who come out of Abraham's loins, so to speak. Because he promises, I'm going to bless the whole globe, the whole cosmos through you. Because eventually what would happen is a man named Jesus, who was not just a man, he was also God, would come and he would bless not just ethnic Israel, but the whole world. And Abraham believed that. There was specificity now to God's promises. 
as he reconfirmed the covenant with Abraham. And Abraham believed. He staked his claim on that, even though it flew in the face of everything that seemed logical. He trusted God. So you see, when people say that the Christian gospel seems too easy, I know what they mean. Because deep down we feel like we've got something to contribute. But I say to you, in some senses, the Christian gospel is the hardest thing ever. Because it's hard to abandon self-righteousness. It's hard to stop striving. It's hard to trust. But Abram did. God's grace may only be received by faith. It's always been that way. And then secondly, the second portion of our chapter today, God's grace will never fail. He has Abram do this interesting ritual. Takes these animals, cuts them in two, which seems kind of gruesome, frankly. And he places them in kind of a pathway. So there's cut up animals on this side and cut up animals on this side. And there's this path in between. And it was common back in that day for two people who made a covenant, an agreement with one another to do this. Probably, you know, person A, let's call him like Mephibosheth, would bring like three goats. And you've got another guy, let's call him Samuel. And Samuel comes along and he brings like three oxen. And, you know, they take three oxen and three goats and you slice them in two and hear some of the animals and hear some of the animals. And then the two parties, the two people under covenant, would walk among the pieces together. And the symbolism of that is, if I break my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals come down on my head. And the other person walking with you among the pieces would make the same agreement. If I break my end of the argument, may what happened to the, of the agreement make may what happened to these animals happen to me. In other words, if we break our end of the deal, you have the right to claim my life. I will forfeit my very existence if I break my word. It was it was pretty serious. You were basically saying to the other person, "I promise, without any reservation, at the expense of my life, I will keep my end of the bargain." It was a picturesque way of saying this bond is really serious. In Jeremiah chapter 34, God is punishing Israel because they have not kept their word, but we find this cultural um, tradition here. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, so forth and so on. In other words, they, they cut this calf in half, they made an agreement, but then they didn't keep their word. God was going to judge them for that. So very literally, this this tradition was called cutting a covenant. That seems to be what God's doing here in Genesis 15. He's cutting a covenant with Abraham. But you'll notice, down in verse 17, there's not two parties going in and among the pieces. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, and he made them the promises again. Abram's not walking with God between the pieces. God himself is doing this. In theological terms, we call this a unilateral covenant. Only God is making the promises. In other words, God's going to keep his promises even if Abraham fails. And we're going to find in ensuing chapters, even next week, that Abraham failed right away. What God is saying to Abraham is this covenant is irrevocable and unbreakable. And even though I'm calling you to faithful worship, the covenant will stand even whenever you are not faithful in your worship. If it's true that Jesus is the ultimate blessing, the single bright star that Abraham saw in the night sky, the means whereby Abram's family would bless the whole world, if that's true, When Jesus showed up on the scene, there was not a massive welcome party staged by the royalty of Israel. Much the opposite. They did not welcome him. And by the time of his crucifixion, all but a handful had completely abandoned him. In fact, John says in the opening of his gospel, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. The Jesus who would be the means whereby God blessed the whole world was not received halfway by people who were eager to meet him. If that had been the stipulation, the foundation upon which the covenant would be fulfilled, we'd all be screwed. But that's not the way this worked out. 
You see, God's faithfulness in keeping the covenant was not based upon our faithfulness. Could God have done anything more dramatic in Genesis 15? We do this sometimes. Whenever we want to make people really believe we're serious about something, we'll say, I swear. Or we'll amplify by saying, I swear to God. I'll keep my word. Like, that's the ultimate thing. And so when somebody says it, you're like, oh, okay, you swear to God, right? What if God swears by God? What's the most fundamental essence of all of the cosmos? What is it? That there has always been a God. Before there was Pluto or Jupiter or Mars or the sun or the moon or image bearers or animals or plants or water on this planet, what was there? Forever and always there has been a God. And God is saying to Abraham, if I do not keep my word, may I cease to exist. Can that happen? It cannot happen. God is swearing by the highest thing he can swear by that he will keep his covenant. And that is the very nature of his existence. So, he keeps his promises always. In Hebrews chapter 7, an interesting thing is said by the writer. Jesus is being compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as we saw back in Genesis chapter 14, is both a priest and a king. The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the greatest high priest we can possibly trust in because he's a priest and a king. He's better than anything in the religious Jewish system. So he's telling the Jewish Christians of his day, trust in Jesus. He's the best thing you can trust in. He's better than anything Israel's ever had. That's the context. This becomes even more evident, the writer says, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, talking about Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, don't get caught up in all the context of this because I don't want to preach Hebrews to you today. But I want you to pay attention to that last phrase. What is the nature of the life of Jesus? It's indestructible. I'm going to speculate for just a moment. I don't really like this when, when uh, people who preach the Bible do this, but I, I'm curious as to whether this might be the case. I'm curious as to whether or not perhaps, perhaps, Satan was watching what was going on in Genesis 15. He knew enough to know that whenever God showed up, something significant was going on. And he knew there was something really significant about Abraham. This was not a normal dude. And I wonder if he looked on at this ceremony. And I wonder if he looked at it and said, Someday, I'm going to make sure that God's promises fall apart. So one day, God came to earth. And he took on flesh, and his name was Jesus. We know that he chose disciples to follow him. We know that one of them turned his back on the Savior. His name was Judas. And we know that very specifically, Satan entered into him. Now, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot indwell different people at different times. In fact, I believe that whenever you hear things about demon possession, it's just one of his minions. It's one of his angels he sends out. But when he takes special notice, he's up to something. He entered into Judas specifically. Why did he do that? Because Judas would betray Jesus to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would take Jesus and under Pilate's allowance would kill him. Why did Satan do that? After all, isn't it true we know now that the crucifixion of Jesus and of course his resurrection is what undid Satan? It became Satan's ultimate demise. But not only is Satan not omnipresent, he's certainly not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And I just wonder, if for a long, long time, he took what he saw, perhaps, and again, I know I'm speculating in Genesis 15, and said, someday I'm going to turn this on God's head. And then when he had the chance, because he believed that Jesus was the Son of the Most High God, he knew the Trinity. I wonder if he looked at this as his opportunity to make God's promises fall apart. But isn't it ironic that God made all that turn on its head? Because you see, Jesus has an indestructible life. He was neither created nor made, and he will always be. So perhaps even Satan thought God's promises could be undone from Genesis 15. But in seeking to undo them, to kill the Son of God, he lived forever. And this became Satan's undoing. And so you see, God's promises are irrevocable. Because God is indestructible. 
God's grace may only be received by faith, and that's amazing. You do not have to strive. You do not have to meet him way, halfway. You don't have anything to offer him. But in addition to that, God's grace is irrevocable and unchanging, and it will never fail. God's grace is amazing. I want to say to you today that because of the disease of self-righteousness, if you've not submitted to Jesus yet, today should be the day. Today should be the day where you stop trusting yourself. You stop trying so hard and you just rest in him. As irrational and as radical as that may seem to you. I say to those of you who, who believe this, that you still have to be doing this every day. Now, I do not mean by that you're justified over and over again. But I mean by that the fruit of your justification will be proven by the way you rely on him. And in some ways, even though justification does not come by work, what I've just called you to is hard work. Because you have to do this all the time. Because it doesn't come naturally to us. Even after we've assented to this and trusted Jesus, self-righteousness, the remnants of it are still kind of in there. And so you have to work hard to believe, to trust, to be reminded, to follow on. Mainly what I want you to do today, especially for those of you who belong to Jesus already and have trusted him as the promise who came to Abraham and through which the whole world has been blessed, including us, I want you to walk away from today hopeful. I want you to walk away today glad that your self-righteousness has been overcome. I want you to walk away today resting, that despite the fact you're frustrated with your sin, despite the fact that you're often prideful, despite the fact that you're weary, despite the fact that you do not know the future, that God has taken care of it all, and Jesus is your only resource, and he's all you'll ever need. He is an inexhaustible treasure he will always take care of you. I want it to be that it becomes natural, reflexive for us, that when trials come and the floor falls out from beneath us, that our first thought is not that I can cover it financially, not that if I lose this relationship I have two more waiting in the wings, not that I've got it figured out if I'll just work harder, but that your first reflex when life does not go the way you want And in one way or another, we're always reminded of that. That your mind immediately turns to Jesus and says, I've got him. Or perhaps better put, he's got me. And that's all I need. I want to say one last thing to you because I want to make sure this is applied well in another fashion before we quit. So primarily what I want you to do is I just want you to be amazed by grace. I want you to, to walk away from today saying there's no way that's true. Because it sounds too good, but it's so great, that's my hope. That's the main thing I want you to walk away with today. Just overwhelmed by the nature of amazing grace. But, but, but sort of in a corollary fashion, I want you to think about this. If this kind of grace is the kind of grace that the Bible presents, and it's, this is it. This is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. If that's true, then I want you to think about the way you should treat each other. Now, incidentally, just sort of parenthetically, I will come back next week and cover a little bit of what we missed today in verses 12 through 16 about the future of Israel. We'll come back to that, but we don't have time for that today. So just tuck that away. We won't skip it. But, but I want you to think about horizontally speaking, if God vertically treats you with this kind of grace, if this is the nature of grace, how should you treat each other? When it really comes down to it, I think one of the ways that we show our understanding of grace is the way we treat each other. You see what God does here, despite the fact that he knew that Abram was unfaithful and would continue to be, and that his offspring would by and large be grossly unfaithful, that God was poised, eager. He delighted in extending his grace. Let me give you a couple examples of how this might work out in your heart. Next time somebody comes to you and they admit a fault, what should you be like? 
we have this thing we do in our family, and you might not do it exactly like this, but I encourage you to think about it. That whenever a member of our family says to another member, will you please forgive me? And in our family, we don't just say, I'm sorry. We want people, we want our children, we want each other, Whitney and I, to understand that whenever there has been a sin, when a sin has been committed, there's a debt there. And it's not just I'm sorry, because I'm sorry might mean, well, you know, I wish it hadn't happened, or I wish I hadn't done this, or I wish you didn't feel bad, but, but please forgive me. That the response, invariably from our lips, has to be, I will always forgive you. And what we're trying to communicate to our children, of course, to each other, is I delight in forgiving you. Because God has always forgiven me. In fact, I would like it to be that we grow into the kind of people, because I want this to be sort of like church-wide application, that, that in a way, and I'm going to qualify this in just a minute, you're almost happy when somebody sins against you. Because you get to act like God. You get to release them from that debt and embrace them. Now, we never want to take sin lightly here, so you know I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But next time somebody offends you, delight in releasing them from their debt. What about when somebody has a need? I mean, a need they just can't meet. Abram was like that. He had a need he could not meet. He had a debt he could not pay. There was a deficit he could not make up. But God ran to him, just like he'd been doing from the beginning. And, of course, just like Jesus, his later son, would do. Do you run to each other when there is need? Notice what God is doing here as well. He's affirming. He's speaking words of promise. A lot of us grew up in a generation where our parents and our grandparents never spoke words of affirmation. They wanted us to know they loved us by the way they acted. But it was difficult for them to actually articulate promises, words of love. Do you ever find God struggling to do that? You might think to yourself, well, I'm not, I'm not a verbal affirmer because that's awkward for me. You know one of the great weaknesses of our church, just to be honest with you, and I say this to you from time to time, but I don't necessarily see it right now getting a lot better, is that we're poor affirmers. There's a few of you who are really good at it. Most of us are not. You know why? Because we're prideful. But you know what God constantly did? Not just here in Genesis 15, but you know what this is? You know what this is? This is a compendium of verbal affirmation. God never felt awkward making his promises to his people. So why do we? I could go on and on. And though the primary application for us today is just to rest in Jesus, there are some corollary things I want you to think about. The way you treat each other, the way you handle relationships is a direct reflection of the way that you think about grace. So that's corollary, but I don't want to walk away from this passage without at least mentioning that. So in summary today, rest, because the gospel is amazing. And in a corollary fashion, be the kind of people who show that you understand and appreciate grace by the way you treat each other as well.